Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. It, it's become roboticized, unfortunately. You yeah. know, I can remember the days of seeing my physician and the, the conversation would start out by a review of how are you? Uh, <laughs> how is the family? How are things? What's going on? And currently, uh, the physicians are under such a quota, such pressure to get so many patients through um, that that camaraderie, that, that discussion of life has been lost. And instead, uh, all you're seeing is the back of that physician's head as he or she is typing into a computer uh, and clicking off boxes of, of completed notes as opposed to actually engaging eye to eye with you uh, and examining you. Um, even physical diagnosis has fallen a wayside to lab studies and imaging. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Michael D. Young. Dr. Young spent nearly 30 years as a surgeon while living and practicing medicine in Chicago. He's also a best-selling author of three books, Consequence of Murder, Illness of Medicine, and Net of Deception. Currently, Dr. Young is on the faculty of the Department of Urology at the University of Illinois in Chicago. We discussed issues with the current healthcare system, lack of nutrition training for doctors, the impact insurance and pharma companies have on your doctor, and why we need to be proactive regarding our health. Really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Young. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and today we have Dr. Michael D. Young. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, we were talking offline. We both went to Indiana and are avid golfers, um, so a lot in common here. And I'm excited to have uh, Dr. Young on the show. Perhaps <clears throat> maybe give the audience a little bit of background um, just your experience as a urologist, uh, you know, 30 years as a surgeon and what sort of brought you to now becoming a bit of an author. So, well, I, I practiced medicine in the Chicago area for, as you stated, nearly 30 years, and I truly enjoyed it. Uh, I became disappointed, I guess would be the best word to describe my, my experiences in healthcare delivery towards the latter part of my practice. Um, over the past 10 years, as I witnessed a, a greater debacle that patients had to go through, that providers had to go through in uh, obtaining or providing healthcare, uh, it became increasingly frustrating for me and I wanted to write about it. And so I elected to step out of clinical practice uh, and wrote uh, my first book, The Illness of Medicine. Uh, which was a uh, anecdotal and uh, commentary about the evolution of our healthcare delivery system, which again, I, I find a great deal of fault in. Um, I always enjoyed medicine. I have no complaints about that. None of the problems were, were the practice or the patients. It was the environment with which we had to practice. It was the overwhelming bureaucratic control um, from a corporate structure that was evolving in healthcare, um, 
And since I left practice, I was recruited to uh, be involved and I'm currently the director of innovation in the Department of Urology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I teach a course there in the College of Medicine and am engaged in designing and developing uh, medical instruments and surgical devices. Um, and since then, I have also uh, written two uh, novels with a medical predicate and I'm currently working on my fourth book. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, we were talking, your first book was The Illness of Medicine? Yes. Experiences of Clinical Practice. What, what, would, what are some of the big takeaways that individuals would get from reading that book? Well, I think the, the book starts out um, trying to explain how I evolved in medicine, both from my background as well as the practice that I was um, um, engaged in. And then it divides into um, more of a descriptor of the problems that patients are confronting. And I would state that the, the main predicate is that it is the business of medicine. It is the, yeah. the business of, of healthcare who I feel their main objective is sustaining the business of healthcare. And that the patient has become more of a commodity um, in this transactional relationship with healthcare, um, the physicians themselves uh, have really lost control of their own domain. They have lost the ability to uh, appropriately manage uh, not only what they're doing, the, the financial outcomes, uh, but also the process by which patients go through. They don't own their own practices anymore. And so I'm trying to describe for the reader that the providers and the patients are really uh, in the same lifeboat uh, as they are struggling to contend with this overwhelming corporate managed perspective of healthcare. Yeah, it's interesting you use the word commodity as like the patients are commodities and, you know, it's, it is, a, it is a business, right? And um, almost it's one of those things where they like the healthcare system. Do they, do they want us to get, do they want us to get better? Or well, do they... <laughs> that's a great point. And um, I would make the statement and perhaps it's a broad statement, um, but the United States is selling disease. We're not selling health. Um, you know, when I turn on television, I'm not hearing a whole lot of advertisements about what to do right for myself. What I am hearing is that we will sell you a pill. Right. And if you look at other countries um, that have much more preventative health care initiatives, um, we see fewer patients uh, going to the emergency rooms. We see fewer patients being admitted to the hospital. Uh, we have less of the chronicity of disease that we have here in the US, which is really reactive instead of preventative. Um, and so- uh, Why do you think your, that is? Do, would you say that's because just the, the amount of clout and money within the pharmaceuticals? Well, I don't blame the pharmaceuticals entirely. I do find them to be significantly culpable for a lot of the problem. If we, looking at the pharmaceuticals, uh, the United States makes up 5% of the world's population, and yet 40% of all drug sales are in the United States. 
40 uh, percent of that of, of that money is is gleamed here at the U.S. Uh, I believe 80 percent of all uh, uh, hydrocodone prescriptions for the whole world are prescribed here in the U.S. So yes, the pharmaceutical industry is promoting themselves significantly. They advertise significantly. If you look at television, oh, yeah. uh, I, I think several years ago, a study was performed that showed over 700,000 ads on TV for drugs. Um, and it's interesting to note, Brian, that the U.S. and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that allow medication, direct consumer advertising. Hmm. So, yes, the pharmaceutical industry has a large part in the costs. We think that, uh, you know, they contribute significantly to uh, many of the um, uh, people who go into bankruptcy. They simply can't afford their medications. Right. I would also put a, a fair amount and probably the majority of fault on the insurance industry. Uh, I like to quote, you know, the golden rule that he who owns the gold makes the rules. And the insurance industry uh, dictates um, the flow of money within right. medicine. Uh, I, as a, as a physician, uh, can charge whatever I like, but the insurance industry is going to reimburse me what they deem is reasonable. And their metrics for what is reasonable is, is not the same as mine. Um, and so I do feel that the uh, insurance industry, which is regulating uh, the, the great majority of, of, of costs, both physician costs, hospital costs, what the patient has to pay out of pocket, et cetera. And finally, I would argue that the corporate structure uh, that now owns hospitals and physicians, some 45% of practices, some 70% of physicians who are under 40 are managed by a corporate structure. And they are dictating, for instance, to physicians, how many patients they need to see, how, how much they have to do, um, they're controlling the, the the paycheck. Yeah, and you don't see many private practice anymore, right? Like it's too expensive, right, to be in practice for yourself. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, I was in private practice initially for twenty years, um, but with the costs of malpractice insurance, with the inability as a solo practitioner or a small practice to compete with the contracting that occurs. Um, with various insurance uh, uh, coverage, uh, we ended up having to join a large um, collaborative group of urologists. There were about 70 of us in practice. Wow. It was the second largest group in the United States. And unfortunately, yes, it, it was a matter of survival financially with that. But unfortunately, I, in turn, lost my capability of dictating how I would do things. It was a corporate, mm. you know, it was like the Titanic turning and everything had to go through a internal discussion review and, and, and become a, it became a very like political, almost. political yeah. and very unpleasant way for me to practice. Um, how I wanted to practice was now dictated by a a group decision and well, I went into private practice because I had my own visions of how I wanted to 
proceed. And now I was part of a large consortium and not all of which felt the way I did about certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's obviously been the growing trend, like you've mentioned. And I think like yourself getting into uh, becoming a physician in the first place, you probably didn't think it would go down that road, but I, a lot of, a lot of doctors don't imagine themselves going down that road. But like you said, it's almost a matter of survival as far as having a practice and being able to practice the medicine that you, you know, you've learned over the last. It's become roboticized, unfortunately, you know, I can remember the days of seeing my physician and the the conversation would start out by a review of how are you? Uh, (laughs) How is the family? How are things? What's going on? And currently uh, the physicians are under such a quota, such pressure to get so many patients through um, that that camaraderie, that that discussion of life has been lost, and instead, uh, all you're seeing is the back of that physician's head as he or she is typing into a computer uh, and clicking off boxes of of completed notes, as opposed to actually engaging eye to eye with you uh, and examining you. Um, even physical diagnosis has fallen a wayside to lab studies and imaging and i'm not saying that um that is wrong in terms of diagnostic ability but i also feel we have lost that human component of healthcare. that i as a patient i need someone to touch my belly hold my hand smile give me reassurance and not this roboticized sterile treatment modality that we're in today, mostly out of efficiency needs. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned before about like prevention and obviously myself being in this business as a health coach and um, just interviewing a lot of different individuals in the same realm. Hope, I think prevention hopefully has become more in the, in the limelight in a sense with a lot of different uh, like, for example, I'm learning uh, through a company called functional diagnostic nutrition, where you know, you're going to learn how to, you know, do some tests on individuals and, and help people, you know, be proactive about their health, because really our healthcare system, or you want to, if you want to almost call it like a sick care system is really just about, um, you know, waiting till that individual gets sick. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and, and to your point, nutrition is something that I, honestly feel was neglected in my health care medical school education um the value of understanding diet understanding the gut biome as a uh, a major predicate in our overall health um was was really ignored and much of our health care um teaching is exactly what you said. It's after the disease has occurred as opposed to uh, preventing it. I, when I was a practitioner, as a urologist, uh, obviously I practiced in the era when Viagra came out. Viagra right. was introduced, it was FDA approved in, in March of 1998. And I remember very clearly how that impacted healthcare. Um, Patients were demanding this little blue pill. And yet, when I would try to tell patients, well, let's try something else. Let's, let's change your diet. Right. Let's increase your sleep. 
Let's cut out the alcohol. Let's cut out the smoking. Let's go on a vacation for a week. All of these measures to try to improve health without taking a medication uh, seem to be an outlier in how many of my colleagues were managing it because it was much easier. It was much simpler to write a prescription than to go through the litany of discussions about one's trying to lose 20 pounds. Um, and as we look at our society today, uh, if I, I believe obesity is about 40% of our population mm -hmm. or overweight, I, I don't know specifically, that's a bit out of my realm, but we have a, a society that is um, not uh, engaged in healthcare prevention. And as a consequence, we're seeing all of these, these chronic illnesses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also too, on that point is the, the amount of statins and things that are, that are handed out. Is this, is part of that reasoning, just the physicians, the pressure for them to, to, you know, to move the statins, to make, you know, no, I don't think so. I, okay. I, and, and I'm certainly not opposed to writing prescriptions. That's what sure, I did. Sure. Um, however, um, as a surgeon, for instance, uh, to cut was not to cure. To cut was to cut. Right. Um, and it is not the, the, the go-to solution that I felt was appropriate. It was the last solution. Um, and the same thing with medication. Certainly, if you need to prescribe it, do so. But I would always encourage trying what could be done uh, without the introduction of these drugs. And, and it's not that um, these drugs are, are necessarily bad for you. However, um, many patients are taking multiple drugs for many things. And I would see, particularly in my practice as a urologist, a, a fair number of my patients were elderly. Um, I'd see patients coming in on 12, 13, 15 drugs. And rather than adding another drug, let's try to subtract some. And let's see, you know, we're on one drug to compete with uh, or cause one problem and another drug to balance that drug. And it, it really became a ridiculous chess match of uh, trying to counter each drug side effects. And, and I, so to that point, no, I don't think physicians are encouraged to write drugs, but I think they're very easy um, ways to, to help people. And that is the one they do. And I would argue other ways that are more, much more long-term or time-consuming are less frequently engaged. Would, would one solution be, because uh, I had uh, a doctor out of the West Coast, Dr. Gary Schleifer, who has a practice and they do, they're, they're, they're geared towards preventative. Um, would one way of sort of changing the realm around this or the landscape is to, with, with the trainings that are being done for physicians to, to incorporate more of that preventative end in their trainings and make that part of almost like a benefit, a benefit to, to having a practice and helping people. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and again, the physicians, 99.99% of physicians are going into healthcare. They're going through a very long process of, of education and training, uh, a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice. They want to do the right thing. I think many of them are handcuffed right now. Um, they simply don't have the capability in the way practices are set up to facilitate these 
long-term discussions mm-hmm. with a patient. I, you know, a current patient comes in and it, it's interesting, Brian, uh, a study was done that showed that uh, a patient comes in and 88% of their time, their introductory statement is interrupted and it's interrupted at 17 seconds in. How do you, do, where do you get this, this data from? That's well, it is, it, I, I, Just, I mean, this is, this has yeah. been repeated. This is yeah. not from a study, right? but patients who have been preparing for that appointment for weeks, if not months, have a, you know, they are prepared to think about what they want to talk about. And the physician who has no time allotted because they are under this quota system because their practice is owned by this corporate structure is telling them, uh, you have to see, you know, 20 patients per day, X, you know, ding, ding, ding. Right. It's very much a, um, a roboticized process. The, pa- the patient is also exposed to more mid-levels in practice, right? Less of the physician's time. Mm-hmm. I've met some very, very capable and very good mid-levels. But again, um, from my perspective, patients want to talk to the doctor. And the doctor just doesn't have the facility to do it. And so you're talking about preventative motions or preventative means for healthcare. That requires time, it requires emphasis, it requires reiteration. That just doesn't exist today in our current system. Yeah, and and really it just comes down to the individual being proactive and taking their health in their own hands. Um, granted, there, there's a time and place, obviously, to go to a doctor, and and I'm not understating that, but like even for my own health, like I do my own, you know, I used Merrick Labs. They you know, got a script right up, do my own labs. I had another individual who I was uh, on the podcast um, who is very well versed in in analyzing blood, you know, doing blood analysis. And just I've done some set talking with him and just going through the blood work and really looking at what are optimal markers for myself. Because a lot of times the marker, even though the ranges that are shown on a lot of the blood work that's being done is not optimal. It's what, you know, like the general population should be at. And so, yeah, it really comes down to a lot of just like, like you well, mentioned. Pro- yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah. but you know, it's interesting, Brian. You're mentioning yourself or the uh, most people, they don't have the time, they don't have the energy, they don't have the resources. Yeah. Um, they are working uh, one, maybe two jobs. They have, they have their children to manage. They have... So no, many yeah. responsibilities that they, the last thing they can do is to be their own physician. And, and to that end, um, many people go online for their healthcare information. And that is a double edged sword sure. because oh, yeah. people are learning the vocabulary, but they're not learning the meaning. And so they, they will go online for 20 minutes, a half hour, you know, after I discuss with them, a particular problem. I mean, I've spent 30, 40 years doing that, and yet they're going to go online for half an hour and feel that they have the equivalent background to discuss this. And they don't, obviously. But the internet provides a a, a background information media for them, but it is not replacing. And people who think that are are, are making an error because they don't have the background to properly interpret everything. So yes, you have knowledge, you have experience, but the great majority of people, they don't. 
Yeah. And seeing a doctor is a rare event. And unfortunately, it's all too often after a problem has occurred. Yeah. No, I, you're right. I mean, most people won't necessarily go out of their way to, you know, do their own blood work and, and, and maybe, I think, I think it's important though, to align yourself maybe with either some type of, um, holistic pr practitioner or someone that's a little bit more on the preventative end, still have the doctor, right. You know, as, as, you know, as an annual or biannual, um, you know, sort of appointment, but it also helps to have someone who's more, um, versed maybe in the nutrition and the wellness side of it. Um, I think that that in itself is, is, is a good sort of one, two. Well, yes. I mean, yeah. things are evolving today. If you look yeah. at, uh, just what we can do with the apps on our phone, patients are able to monitor, for instance, their glucose much more easily today with the transdermal monitors, as opposed right. to having doing a finger stick. I have one um, on right now. <laughs> So yeah, if right. you're doing a finger stick to check your glucose several times a day, um, after a few days, after a few weeks, after a few months or years, right? You get tired of sticking yourself. It yeah. hurts. Yeah. It's expensive. And you know what? After a while, you say, you know what? I'm not doing it as often as I should. Um, so obviously, the transdermal monitors allow you to more frequently do it and take control where, again, much of our healthcare is improved if we have a consistency and frequency of evaluation. Uh, you have the patients who can monitor their EKGs off their phones today. So I, I do, and I'm hopeful that downstream, we will have technology that allows you to measure, say, blood pressure more uh, easily. Um, yeah. All of these things that give or empower the patient to take some modicum of control rather than waiting for that as you state, annually or biannual exam, we, the more frequent you can assess things, keep your weight in check, keep your glucose in check. Um, I think you're going to see less downstream uh, medical issues. Yeah, no, you're seeing a lot of that with the wearables, like you mentioned the CGM, which I do from time to time, just to sort of, uh, just to get an idea. I like to test things out and uh, like the whoop and uh, the aura ring and where mm -hmm. it analyzes sleep. So yeah, no, I think that is a growing technology that can definitely be used. Um, what would you say? Let's maybe get a little bit into you, you've, you have a couple, a few books, books, uh, maybe touch on your most recent one is, is that the novel? Is, or, um, well, I have written a, two novels, um, using health care as a predicate um, into problems that occur. My last book was entitled uh, Net of Deception. And Net of Deception was really predicated on my frustration as a practitioner with these evolving online pharmaceuticals, um, such as, pardon me. Yeah, no problem. Such as... Um, where one can order uh, various uh, uh, erectile dysfunction medications. And as a consequence, uh, I found it very disturbing that a patient could so easily convince the practitioner at these companies uh, of the uh, need for, uh, say, Viagra, and they would get it. Right. And they bypassed many of the uh, questions 
that I think are important. Oh, one could argue that they're, they're licensed physicians, they know what questions to ask. I went on myself to try. I could have gotten these drugs without ever talking to anybody. Uh, there was very little vetting of my need. And yet these drugs are not benign. Uh, there have been deaths related to them. And so I wrote that novel um, as an expose, if you will, in a, in a fictitious manner, but predicated on reality of a nefarious company that takes that healthcare information that one is giving and uses it as blackmail information. You know, I can go to Amazon, I could go to any online retailer and they'll ask me for my mailing address and my credit card, that's fine. But if I go and they're starting to ask me more uh, delicate questions about my personal health information, well, that's things that they can hold on to and potentially use against me. And so that's what the novel was about. It was about a, a bad um, acting pharmaceutical online company taking advantage of people's needs and their weaknesses uh, and uh, then going back and using that against them. So it's mm -hmm. a, it's a fictionalized perspective of reality. Yeah. What would you say, like, what, what are some of the biggest things that you learned about just like writing these books, but also your just experience 30 years as a surgeon, like, would you have changed anything through your career? Um, uh, would you have done anything differently? If there's someone that's maybe getting into medicine, what, what advice would you give them? Well, I do teach in the College of Medicine at University of Illinois uh, here in Chicago. Nice. I teach a course in innovation and in um, the development of uh, medical devices uh, more as a, as a technique or a tool for learning methodology and process. Okay. Um, but again, I try to emphasize to the students um, the need to maintain and to find the, the if there is such a thing, the humanness uh, that has been lost in healthcare. Uh, the students are very well versed in uh, anatomy, physiology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but how do you learn to talk to someone? How do you learn to evaluate, to be in touch with them. And I, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish here, uh, but we have lost that in healthcare. Um, we, we all have that image of the physician as this caring um, individual who's listening to our problems. And yet when we go to the office, I think we all come away almost disappointed that I've got a slip of paper with a set of instructions of what I have wrong with me and a prescription and a number to call. And when I call that number, it ends up going to some computerized answering service that puts me in touch with someone I've never met. Um, and so I really want to try the, the current generation to, to, to try to become more involved in, 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 in treating a person. Uh, I, from my perspective, uh, treating an individual is, is, is not treating a disease in a person, it's treating a person with a disease. Mm. And understand that that person needs comfort and they need understanding and they also need direction. Um, and they, they need a, a human element that I, I'm finding is missing today. Yeah, no, that's, 
That is so true. And uh, I was uh, actually speaking of a company that I think is sort of on the forward end of doing things, a company called, have you heard of Go Forward? Um, they're actually in Chicago. Um, I've never actually done anything with them. I'm not affiliated with them, but I was just um, looking them up and that they've sort of tried to combine like personalized preventative healthcare and make it all into one sort of a cool leading edge company. Um, so yeah, it's called forward. And if someone's looking for maybe a resource to use, um, that, that might be something. And, and I know they're in yeah. Chicago and a few no, different areas. It's a terrific concept. I, I, I see a, I see two problems. I see, yes. Number one, people need to take more control individually. They need perhaps more advocacy on their own. But we also need to find a method of healthcare for the masses, sure, for the public, sure. right? Because and, they're they're paying monthly. You know, this is out of pocket, right? Um, and people can't afford that, right? Half of forty five percent, fifty percent of Americans right now can't afford a five hundred dollar emergency medical bill. Th their budgets are so thin; they are not going to spend that extra. 10, 20, 30, $50 a month. They yeah. just can't and they yeah. won't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the yeah. economics of healthcare really supersedes what most people want and need today. Right. And we look at this healthcare train that is moving. Uh, right now in the United States, we have the most costly healthcare system in the world. And what are we getting in return for that? Um, we are 30th in longevity. And I'm sure that comes as a shock to many listeners. We all pride ourselves on American technology innovation and look what we have. And yet we're 30th in longevity. Um, we're first in obesity. Uh, you know, 15% of our children are on poverty. Um, these are inexcusable numbers. Yeah. And there's probably not a quick fix as we've seen, especially with all the well, politics and things like that. No, yeah. no, there isn't. But I think there is a fix. And yeah. um, maybe you should run for mayor. <laughs> well, I, 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 I do think that the, 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 this is not a problem that has been forever. Um, I think, and, and this is something, again, I experienced over the last decade or so in practice, which eventually drove me out of it. Um, but if we can control, and this was the predicate of illness of medicine, if we could control the flow of money, I think we could better manage things. Now, yeah. That, that that's easier said than done, obviously, but we can regain this if from my perspective, um, if you have a single payer system um, where you're not having competition and you're not having a fragmented healthcare delivery system. Right now, the drug companies are pulling out what they can. The device are pulling out what they can. The industry is pulling out what they can. Nobody is working in a consolidated fashion for the patient. Um, we live in a country with 20 to 25% wasted money in a 18 trillion, you know, we have, we have this massive uh, yeah. amount of GDP of which 
what, 17%, three and a half trillion is spent on healthcare. 20 to 25% of that is wasted uh, with administrative costs, over testing, uh, inefficiency use of our testing. There's no excuse for that. If we had a single payer system, from my perspective, um, no one would be competing, they'd be working in a consolidated manner. So I do feel that without getting too far out on the political spectrum, yeah. Because healthcare shouldn't be political. Right. Healthcare is something we all need. We are all patients, physicians alike. Uh, but we do need a method to reel in and control how money is spent in medicine. And I think if we can do that, we would have better control. We could eliminate many of these problems that we have. So I don't. I'm not giving up on it. Yeah. But how we vote, which companies we support, whose products we buy which stocks we buy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, can all control the flow of money. And I think it is a generational problem, Brian. This isn't going to be fixed in a, in a decade. It may take 20 to 30 years, but I think we could get things back on a, on a, where the ship isn't, isn't keeling. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, this is definitely a topic that we could probably talk hours about. Um, but yeah, I appreciate everything. Um, you've brought to the show and where, where's the best place for people to find you? Well, people who are interested in my publications, uh, they can, uh, go to my website, which is Michael J young Uh, they can go to my, uh, publisher's website, which is gmbooks.com. I'm on Amazon. Um, in the Chicago area, there are not a lot of bookstores anymore. Um, to find yeah. these books. Um, I definitely want to check them out. Cause I'm, 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 I'm more of a nonfiction guy, but it sounds like it's your, your novels are sort of a, a mix of both nonfiction yes. and fiction. Uh, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but a few independent bookstores will carry my books. But again, from where I'm sitting, I have to think long and hard where I could physically go to a bookstore and purchase a book. And so online seems to be the most, yeah. Uh, that appears to be the easiest method to do it. And uh, I hope people will, will take the time to, to read these books. They, uh, they all carry a theme. The, the, the novels, as you stated, they are novels, but they're, they're predicated on experiences of reality, yeah. of uh, drug company realities, of drug innovation realities, uh, of problems that people see in healthcare. And uh, my main topic, I guess, if one could say, I see a common theme of greed uh, mm -hmm. in all of my books, which leads to many of the debacles that we're having. Well, Dr. Young, I appreciate it. Uh, I will definitely check out. I'll put some show uh, links in the show notes of your books and your website. And um, yeah, thanks for um, thanks for coming on the show today. A, a local local Chicago guy and. IU looks like their basketball team is going to be something yes. to watch this. They're looking season. good. Yes. So um, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great, Brian. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. 
Thanks again and have a great day.